Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Pamela Sweat about her excellent book, Selling Under the Swastika, Advertising and Commercial Culture in Nazi Germany, published by Stanford University Press in 2014. Dr. Sweat, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thanks for inviting me. Um, It's great to have you. Um, Dr. Sweat, we normally like to begin these interviews by having uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, well, I was born in Massachusetts. Um, I went to Bryn Mawr as an undergraduate. And um, when I arrived at Bryn Mawr, I guess I knew I wanted to be a researcher, but I was sort of torn between chemistry and history. But when I got there, I happened to um, have some luck and chose some courses taught by the great Jane Kaplan and those out there who are historians of Germany will know that name, and um, that did it for me. I, I never looked at another chemistry book again. So I worked uh, at Bryn Mawr on German history and then went to Brown University for graduate work. Um, at Brown, I got lucky again uh, and chose uh, uh, Volker Berkhan as my supervisor, who um, has a terrific reputation as a wonderful supervisor, and so um, I had a good experience there, and Carolyn Dean was also an important uh, teacher and mentor. So that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And then I got this job at uh, McMaster University, and I've been in Canada the last um, 18 years or something like that. It's It's been a while now. Oh, wow. Um, I'm also from Massachusetts, so it's always nice to speak oh, yeah? to, to a fellow uh, a Massachusettsite. Um, that's right. Um, so fascinating. Um, so... How did you come to write this book? What got you interested in this uh, topic of advertising and commercial culture? It's it's not something that has right. been uh, written about a lot, but very, very important and very fascinating. Right. Well, I guess it goes back to when I was still a graduate student. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Volker Berkhan was my supervisor, and he never really let any of us idle too long. And so I remember it was all, you know, while I was writing my dissertation, which was on a completely different topic, um, it was about political radicalism in, in late Weimar, Berlin. And one day in his office, uh, when I was still sort of focused on that, he said to me, so what is your next project going to be when this is done? And um, that surprised me, but of course I didn't want to say I had no idea. And so I was sort of trying to brainstorm quickly, and I said, well, maybe something on um, consumer culture, consumption in uh, Nazi Germany. And he said, well, you know, by the time you're actually working on this next project, that will probably have already been done. It was a field that was still, you know, kind of opening up at the time, um, but he assumed somebody would have would snap that up before I got to it. And maybe he was just saying this to kind of, um, you know, keep me on my toes and, and sort of encourage me to, to get thinking about it. Um, but whatever the case, uh, a few years later when the uh, dissertation was completed and the book manuscript was off to the press, uh, I did start poking around in, in the general area of kind of consumer culture and uh, in the Third Reich and then ended up settling on advertising as the focus. Um, 
I, I think there could have been other things one one could have done because I, I'm not. I think I was right in this instance, and <laughs> which is unusual with Volker, but um, it wasn't a, a completely well trodden area at that point. But anyway, I I settled on advertising, and I think perhaps the reason was, um, as you said, nobody had had done it yet. But also, I liked the fact that um, it kind of offered a, a new way into issues of consumer culture, but it seemed to me it, it spoke to some other issues as well. So consent uh, with regard to the dictatorship, uh, daily life, uh, commerce more generally. So it was, a, it, even though in a way it's, it's very narrow because, you know, you're looking at sort of one sector of, of um, you know, the sort of larger consumer culture, it, it, um, it gave me a, a way to sort of speak to a lot of issues that I was interested in. And um, so just to give you one example, one of the things I liked about it was there's sort of three types of actors in, in the story, right? There your advertisers and business owners. That's sort of one group. And they have their own motivations, right? They're business people. They want to make a profit. They want to sell stuff. Uh, then you've got your consumers, right? And they are women for the most part. So that sort of brings in an interesting issue. Um, plus, they have different motivations, right? They want good quality products or they want to feed their family or they're worried about, you know, a, a health concern. They're looking for medicine or, or whatever the case may be, but they have their own personal issues um, that motivate them. And then, of course, you, in this case, given this is a dictatorship, you also have the state with its own sort of uh, intentions regarding uh, consumer uh, or commerce generally. And so um, so I, I like the idea of trying to think about these three different sort of groups of historical agents and how they will negotiate this, the same space, right? The same sort of visual culture um, and commercial space. And, and it turned out to be fun. So I stuck with it. <laughs> um, it's, it definitely sounds, uh, when you read it, it definitely comes through as a fun project to work on. So uh, let me ask you, I know the book is about the Third Reich, but um, can you talk a little bit about advertising in, in, in the Weimar period and, and how does it change um, when the Nazis come to power, is the and is the change abrupt or is it gradual? Um, does right. anybody barely notice? Right. Oh. Yeah. Sure. I mean, like other aspects of Weimar, the advertising industry was hobbled by the economic crises at the start and the end of the Republic's lifespan. Right. So there, there's going to be this, um, you know, a, a crisis within advertising, uh, sort of at the start and and then again um, during the Great Depression. Uh, you know, when companies aren't seeing profits, they tend to cut back on expenses that aren't seen as vital. And this is true today, obviously, as well. And, and advertising um, is an easy thing to spend less on, right? So that's one of the first things that, that tends to go, or at least, you know, be, it can be minimized. Um, I think this was especially true in the 1920s because there was a tradition in Germany going back into the 19th century that, that advertising was a little bit shady, right? It was not a, a, a respected uh, sort of industry. A lot of business owners, uh, commercial leaders believed that if one's products or services were good, you know, the quality was high, then you didn't need to advertise, right? That the word of mouth would be enough. And that if you had to advertise, that was almost a sign of desperation. You had to, you know, try to um, almost trick people into buying your uh, goods or services. And this is connected to sort of longer standing, um, you know, anti-Semitic beliefs and prejudices as well, uh, and which I'll come back to, as you can imagine, that, that will come back into the story um, when the Nazis come to power. Uh, but anyway, so, so 
because your um, advertising was already kind of in this liminal position, that was a further reason to kind of cut it during time, you know, difficult economic times. So, um, so we're not going to see the industry in Weimar develop, you know, to the to a huge extent, right? It's kind of uh, struggling along through the Weimar period for these reasons. Um, but, you know, it's best years, like in other aspects of Weimar history, where the, the sort of middle years, um, you know, say 24 to 28, um, these sort of most stable years economically. And the first thing that's worth stressing um, when we look at that period, for example, is that their advertising is really – there's kind of two worlds of advertising in this period. Um, most advertisement, most product promotion um, was very simple. Uh, small print ads, signs, uh, black and white, no photographs, just some maybe a drawing um, or just some simple type, you know, that lists sort of the name of the, the retailer or the name of the, the company, um, what they make, where they're located, you know, what we might think of today almost as classifieds, right? So very small, simple print ads. And that's what most advertising, that's the bulk of, of sort of the promotional material that's out there. Um, you might get sort of, if you move up in terms of the size of the company, uh, say a large retailer like a big department store in one of Germany's main cities, they might um, have an in-house ad department or an in-house ad uh, you know, copywriter, designer. Um, those classifieds, those those small retail shops and stuff, their ads are being um, farmed out to to freelance designers. So uh, maybe a larger retail um, outlet like a department store, they might have a couple of people within house that that d design all the ads, um, but only and theirs therefore might be slightly more sophisticated, but still quite simple. Only the sort of largest companies, sort of the international companies in Germany might actually go to an ad agency. So ad agencies, the way we think of them, are really in their infancy in these years. Um, and the most sophisticated in Germany are actually branches of American and British agencies, um, like J. Walter Thompson is one of the three or so that I talk about in the book. Um, and the biggest – and so these – you know, these are quite sophisticated operations, um, but therefore they're very expensive. So only the biggest sort of brand names are relying on these um, agencies. And, and many of their customers, many of the companies who go to these agencies in Germany in the 1920s are actually, as I said, international corporations, including, say, American companies who are, want to sell their goods in Germany. So General Motors, for instance, is one of the companies that relies on an ad, an ad agency within Germany. In these years, but a lot of you know all the small German companies are not doing that. Now, having these non-Germans within on German soil making ads, um, we do see in the 1920s some uh, change, some sort of a greater sophistication across the industry. Um, you might say there's an Americanization of the look of ads in this period, um, and this is something that Victoria de Grazia uh, among others has, has written about, um, and that is that, for instance, we see in the 1920s the emergence of what we might call teaching ads. So this was a style of ad that had been uh, created first in the United States, and then it, it sort of makes its way to Germany in the 1920s. And by teaching ad, what they mean um, is that the advertisements, for the first time, have more text 
And this text, the whole paragraph or so, instead of just the name of the company and where they're located and what they make, a sort of paragraph or two teaching the consumer why they should buy this um, item. So they might uh, try to present some scientific evidence for why, you know, buying a certain toothpaste will help, you know, um, cut down on cavities, or they might, um, you know, uh, describe why using old 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 mouthwash will, you know, improve your your breath and therefore make you more kissable, right? So the, these sorts of uh, attempts to through text to convince the consumer to to make a purchase. And um, this is quite new. And as I said, it comes first from the United States, but we start to see it, it popping up in Germany in the 1920s. Uh, we also see advertising becoming more international in other ways, right? The graphics, um, the typeface that's being used, all of this is sort of influenced by international trends. Um, and the whole sort of industry is, is quite international in the 1920s. So not just Germans, but Americans and British. And, um, you know, they're, they're traveling to other countries to, um, to learn about advertising and graphic design. They're reading each other's professional journals and this sort of thing. Um, and, and there are some German advertisers who are actually quite involved in this sort of international climate. And so the look of advertising, advertising, um, does become more sort of international in the 1920s. But as you might imagine, therefore, this is going to kind of come back to haunt them in the Depression. So that when the Depression comes at the end of the decade, um, this sense that advertising is international is a um, disadvantage, right? When Germany becomes more nationalist, uh, as the Nazis are kind of making their quest for power and as the democracy, the republic, uh, the republic's democracy is faltering, um, there's this kind of, you know, inward looking, uh, nationalist spirit and, and therefore advertising is kind of not, um, you know, not on that trend. And so there's a, a sort of backlash against advertising. Um, and some of those older arguments against advertising, uh, advertising come to the surface, right? That this is actually a Jewish practice, a Jewish business practice that is really about um, tricking consumers or uh, hoodwinking consumers into buying things they don't need and, you know, should be rejected. So advertising in, uh, in the years right before the Nazis come to power is really – um, in a defensive position, they are seen as foreign to to many within Germany, as uh, you know, led by Jews or um, at least sort of representing a kind of Jewish international business model. So that's certainly not going to help. And also the fact, of course, that the economy is struggling means that you know when companies are looking to 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 trim um, their bottom line, they also are going to uh, maybe cut back on advertising. So, so advertisers, um, say, you know, from 1929 to 33 or so are really uh, feeling very concerned about their futures, um, you know, very defensive, as I said, about, about what they do. Now, for some, this made the Nazis kind of attractive. And although that doesn't seem to make sense, it, it kind of does if you think about it, right? If you if um, you feel like the whole, say, society is against you and you um, need to, you know, maybe you're not going to have your job in a year, if there is a political party that says, well, yes, you need to be reformed, 
but there is a place for you in the future, uh, you know, you might at least listen to what they say. And so when the Nazis come to power, um, there were at least some advertisers who who said that we should give this new regime a chance. And the reason why they thought maybe we should give the new regime a chance is because, remember, the Nazis had a very high reputation for their own graphic design and their own sort of product promotion being themselves, right, promoting their ideology, their party. Um, they were thought to be very good propagandists. And so, you know, advertisers thought, well, these are people who understand what we're all about. They understand, you know, what good uh, promotion means and they understand modern media and they um you know the the Nazis had been very adept at using newspapers using um film using uh radio et cetera right so they seem to have a good grasp of of modern media and communications and uh propaganda and so so there were at least some advertisers who thought okay the, these guys maybe will will like what we do because they respect it now there were certainly other advertisers who um who, you know, were not on board with the Nazi takeover. Uh, you know, there were there was a sort of significant uh, number of Jews in the industry, also um, socialists and, and others who just had this more international mindset, uh, who, who, you know, who did not like this, this turn inward that the Nazis represented. Um, so it's really everything is sort of up in the air uh, by the end of the decade. Uh, and... You know, so I wouldn't say um, there was really an abrupt change, um, but there are changes, right? So when the Nazis come to power um, in 1933, they do uh, say that, you know, advertising should remain, that advertising has its place in, you know, the commercial world, uh, but it does need to be reformed. They insisted on... Um, already within the first year. So if you think about the sort of time frame here, trying to judge whether this is abrupt or gradual, uh, you know, the, the Nazis come to power in uh, January, late January 1933. By March, the propaganda ministry has been formed, and by the end of the summer, the uh, what become what is known as the Ad Council, the, the Deutsche Werberat, the, the sort of Nazi Ad Council is created. And so this is the body that will govern um, all advertising. Uh, it was a, a body that um, answered to the to the propaganda ministry or sort of Joseph Goebbels ministry. Um, but it wasn't really directly under him. He was kind of a semi official organization. Um, it's not really a party organization. It had kind of a strange um, Existence. Uh, it was mostly, if you look at the Ad Council and the actual people who served on it, there are some party officials, uh, but the bulk of the members are actually business people, sort of leading businessmen. Um, and so, yes, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, did, did Goebbels interfere or meddle with this? Board? Right, right. Yeah, well, um, he had the power to, and he... Um, but he doesn't really. I mean, that's. I think that was one of the interesting things that I found. Is so as we move into the sort of mid 1930s, Goebbels is um, he doesn't meddle with it too much, and when he does, it it's not to be. Um, you know, we don't see him really pushing them to be you know stricter in any sense. Um, he's 
you know, for the most part, um, on board with their view of advertising, these, these businessmen. Um, and so what was their view? Well, they had the ability to censor ads, right? They could, they could tell a company, no, that ad can't run. Um, they rarely do that. And I think that's because, again, you know, we think, when we look at who they are, they're business people and they want companies to survive. They want their own companies to survive. So in general, the profit motive does not disappear. And Goebbels himself um, had kind of a an interesting relationship with the whole, I, the whole sort of realm of, of consumer culture. Um, he believed Germans should have a, a good standard of living. He believed Germans should enjoy themselves, should have entertainment in their lives, um, should have pleasure in their lives. How the regime would achieve this in an economy that was still um, – you know, it was still quite weak in terms of, of consumer culture. Um, you know, that, that's a more complicated issue. Um, and, you know, for the most part, Goebbels and, and those around him um, and Hitler and those around him all believed that, you know, prosperity would only come for Germany, um, real prosperity uh, and an abundance of consumer goods would only come after the victory in war that they were planning. Um, and so, so we're not going to see a huge growth in consumer goods within German society in the 1930s, um, but they're not against the idea, um, and so uh, so they they don't do a lot to you know shut down advertising or or consumer goods um, industries on on principle. They 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 are sort of dampening that side of the economy in order to prepare for war. Um, but not just sort of on principle that, you know, Germans shouldn't have things, right? They they, they weren't against that. They just wanted – their focus was on preparing for war first. So the Ad Council, you know, does go about reforming, in their words, reforming the industry, right? They will purge the industry of Jews and, and so-called, you know, enemies of – political enemies, so those who had former links to – to parties of the left uh, will not be able to get licenses to work as advertisers. So we see thousands of people actually being pushed out of the industry. And the industry is quite large. If you think about all the, the, the types of jobs that might fall under, you know, the, the, the term advertising. So it's not just copywriters and, and, ad des um, and designers, but, you know, photographers and, um, you know, people who write jingles, people who uh, design signs, uh, window dressers, um, you know, et cetera. There's, there's lots of different types of, of people connected to advertising. So, yeah, we see thousands of people getting pushed out. Um, but in terms of the sort of content of ads or the look of ads in terms of design, we're not going to see hugely, you know, obvious um, changes. They are – Subtle, I think, um, and and that's you know uh, uh, the ad council was okay with that. Again, they wanted businesses to survive. They were business people, and so there's there's not a huge push to to make um, to make ads really Nazi in any kind of very explicit way. And let me give you an example or a couple of examples. One. Um, you know, the, you may have heard this already, but the the leadership of the regime um, was very concerned at, about sort of health of the people, right? That this was a priority, um, and so there were a variety of 
laws put into place over the years that try to limit the um, try to limit smoking, try to encourage people to drink less alcohol, et cetera, eat better, um, get exercise, all this kind of thing. And and yet, although it was discussed, there is no ban put on cigarette ads, um, and there are no bans put on. Um, as for alcohol. So they, they certainly considered it. They knew that was a possibility and that it would probably help achieve this ideological goal. But they don't do it. Um, and there's no pressure from, so the Ad Council doesn't do it, and there's no pressure from, from Goebbels' office or anybody else to do it. So, so again, there's like, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of strike a balance between um, consent, you know, getting the population to be happy. Um, and their own ideological goals. So, you know, that, that, that's one example in which they, they certainly could have used ads to achieve a aim that they, they don't decide, they decide not to do. Um, Is um, one of the yeah. reasons that they don't interfere with the advertising industry similar to why they don't interfere with other industries, that they try to cultivate uh, sort of strong relationships with big business? Um, and is that one reason why they just sort of they, they yeah. encourage but don't right. force them to yeah. not I mean, suffice. I think so. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Um, so we do see, just like you know, um, just as you're saying, that that for the most part, um, they are not going to be that coercive with companies, right? They're they're not forcing companies to to do to do much. They're 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 indirectly forcing them to try to deal with a, an economy that is um, not very friendly to consumer goods industries simply because they've, you know, um, limited the number, the amounts of imports of raw materials that might be used in consumer goods industries, for example, as they, as they try to prepare for war. But, but yeah, they're not going to be very coercive to companies. Um, and that is because they want people to be on side, not just the consumers, but also um, business owners. Um, I mean, I think they're probably less interested in these business owners than they are in heavy industry, right? They, so, certainly, you know, be, yeah. Because of the war, but but you're right that it's the same the same sort of latitude given to to um, to business owners that you know in the consumer goods industries and in um, uh, you know heavy industry. Um, and I also think that they don't interfere um, for a couple of other reasons, or not as much as one might expect. One is that I think they feel they don't really have to. Um, so, you know, put it this way, you think about what advertisers do, uh, even today, right? That, you know, what they try to do is they try to kind of look around, see what the trends are, see what the zeitgeist is, you know, what are people interested in, they try to, you know, replicate that in their in their advertising. I mean, nowadays we even have certain advertisers whose job it is to anticipate trends, right, and to kind of create them you know, be ahead of that, of that, you know, moving fashion. Um, but at this time, they're not quite that sophisticated, but they're certainly trying to pick up on, you know, what is popular right now, what is in the, in the news, what's the buzz, right? And so if you think about the 1930s, um, well, National Socialism was the zeitgeist, right? National Socialism was what everybody was, um, you know, experiencing and feeling that was the mood, right? That's what, um, you know, people were getting, you know, at least some were getting excited about, some maybe still a bit indifferent, but interested at least in what was going on. Um, and as a result, that the ideology kind of seeps into the ads in certain ways without coercion, right? Because advertisers and business owners are trying to be 
you know, in the right place at the right time, right? They're trying to think about, um, you know, how can they seem to fit into this new journey that is developing. Um, so how do we see that in subtle ways then, as I said in ads? Well, you know, we're going to see less of, um, you know, fewer ads for luxury, right? The luxury, um, you know, cons conspicuous wealth is, is less, um, you know, a, in a, a popular way to represent yourself in this period. Um, and so we see, you know, luxury and, and um, uh, sort of self-representations around wealth being less apparent in ads. We're going to see, um, you know, a greater sense, on the opposite side of that, of kind of uh, community, right? Um, that, uh, you know, ads for products that are supposed to improve, um, you know, a sense of togetherness, a sense of unity, or a sense of um, good health, as I said, sort of racial well-being in many ways. Um, so this becomes, this is subtle, but it's certainly, it's certainly there um, in the ads in this period. And Therefore, I don't think the, the regime feels they really have to do a lot to coerce um, because they're still getting ads that, you know, represent their ideals. Of course, we don't want to forget, you know, when I say they're not coercive, um, that's, you know, I already did mention that they have sort of eliminated thousands of people working in the industry, right? So that, that certainly is you know, a significant form of coercion, and that, that certainly did happen. But after those people um, no longer hold their jobs, uh, I think they felt that the ads that they were seeing in the news, you know, in newspapers and such were, uh, and magazines, you know, did represent kind of, um, you know, the issues of the day. Uh, very interesting. Um, you mentioned in your introduction the sort of three actors uh, that mm -hmm. play in this book, the the regime yep. itself, the consumer, and the advertising agency. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to talk a little bit about consumers, particularly women, um, yep. and uh, the role of women is sort of when advertisers are thinking about it. What are you know, the role of the woman in purchasing things? Right. Um, and and how did the advertising industry view women as opposed to how we know the Nazis viewed the mm -hmm. role of women and and you mentioned there was some compatibility between the regime and these agencies, mm -hmm. but wondering how women, thinking about women, sort of impacted both those other actors that you mentioned. I, yeah. Well, advertisers were quite aware that, that women made, you know, the bulk of the purchases for their family, for their, for their families. Um, and so they definitely will market to women. They, they are thinking of women, you know, as the, the audience for their advertisements. Um, and there's also a push in, in light of this reality to get more women working in advertising. Um, this happens already in, in the 1920s, but it, but it does continue. Now, I'm not saying as leading executives or anything, um, which naturally remain quite rare, but as uh, shop window decorators, as store in-store in sales staff, um, and also a, a form of advertising that's kind of disappeared today um, is, you know, that women were often hired by consumer good brands to uh, sort of demonstrate the products, right, to sort of do little demonstrations within stores or um, at, you know, party meetings or at, you know, in various places around cities and towns to get to get people to um, see what these products were 
were all about and how they worked. And, and they liked to have women for those jobs as well because they thought um, quite explicitly that, you know, women would trust, you know, female consumers would trust these, these women sales staff and, and uh, you know, be more willing to, to believe what they were saying about why the product was good. So, so we are seeing more women sort of come into the industry at low levels. Um, and, you know, so how does this fit with, with the Nazi view of the role of women? Well, you could argue that it makes sense that, you know, that not, that national socialists would be okay with this because it, it putting women in the, the role of, you know, caretaker to the family, um, you know, the consumer who, who pr- provides, makes decisions, makes purchases for, um, for the family and that, you know, her, that's her housewife, uh, her role as housewife. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of working female sales staff would be single women. So this isn't, you know, before they get married. So that's okay because they'll still someday get married and be housewives. And so, so it all seems to fit, you know, well enough with, um, with Nazi ideology. Um, but what I'd also say is that, um, and this maybe shows a little bit of tension between that idea that, you know, women are, are housewives or at least are, a sort of simplistic view of what that means, um, is that uh, we also see in this period a greater attention to women as shoppers, but as rational shoppers, right? There's this, advertisers are not just assuming a woman could be easily duped by pretty shiny things. Um, and this was a real belief in the sort of late 19th century, turn of the century, uh, you know, early 20th century. And you just read the work of somebody like Paul Lerner, who's who's written about department stores and in Germany uh, in the imperial period. And, you know, you get this really clear sense that, um, you know, there was great fear that, you know, women who go into these stores are basically just overcome by their their excitement about these goods, that they will just buy anything, that they'll even steal. He has he has done a fair amount of work on, um, on uh, you know, sort of petty theft. Um, and, and that this was all thought to be, you know, women's irrationality. Right, that, that women could not make rational decisions when when confronted with you know beautiful things, um, but by the by the nineteen you know twenties and thirties, I think that changes a bit, um, and companies and their advertisers are becoming a bit more um, conscious of the need to approach women and see women, female shoppers, as rational beings, which sounds I suppose silly to us, but it it's true, and so. Um, there is a greater sense of, you know, well, that's why we want to get women in to the sales staff because, you know, female shoppers will, um, you know, trust them. They will listen to their arguments. They will understand, you know, they 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 will both, um, you know, know what the importance of a certain product is and, and, and trust each other. Um, and we also see companies, you know, doing surveys of, of consumers because they want their opinions. We see some big brands putting out um, – you know, newsletters for loyal customers where they talk about upcoming, um, you know, products or they ask for feedback about existing products. So they are starting to do um, a bit more marketing in that sense, you know, thinking about their market and and really believing that their market had, by market, these female consumers, you know, really had um, important beliefs and experiences that they needed to respond to. So they're I do think there is a, a shift here in this period to, to seeing women, as, female consumers, as rational. Um, and so does that fit with the Nazi view of women? 
Um, I know it probably depended, you know, which national socialist you uh, you asked. I mean, I, I think that um, although you know there's this sort of simplified version of what women should be for uh, for the Third Reich, and that is, you know, mothers and wives. Um, they too had a role to play, right, as mothers and wives. And it wasn't just as birthing machines, but as, you know, women who could create a certain type of culture at home and, um, you know, raise certain types of children. And, and you know, you do need to be a rational being to do that. You're, they're, they're trusting women to, to be able to do that the correct way according to their ideology, right, to teach them about race, to teach them about, um, you know, who they should marry, who who they should do business with even, right? So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I don't think – I think it does fit, um, and, and I but – I, but I have a, a maybe a more balanced view of what I think Nazis actually thought of women, right, and which does include some element of sort of rational behavior. No, I think it's I think it's an important um, thing that you bring up that you know it, the Nazi view of women isn't as simplistic as you know they were just meant to be in the right. home raising yeah. children. Um, yeah. So I, I think the balanced approach is is, mm-hmm. is probably more useful uh, mm-hmm. way to think about it. Um, so the the advertisements themselves, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I mean the picture uh, the book is full of pictures. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the advertising themselves. Okay. Um, still continuing on this theme of women, were the ads themselves, when they were conceived, were they primarily still targeting women? Were they ads that were meant to appeal to women or children? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and how and, and how much did advertisers really think about men? Right. Hmm. Well, I do think that they tended to be. Um, I mean, it would obviously, to some extent, depend on the product. Um, sure, right. But even, you know, men's clothing and, and such, I think, often was, you know, ads were often, um, uh, you know, designed for the the, the woman's, uh, the, the, uh, the woman in his life who would be maybe making that purchase. Um, you know, ads for... Um, you know, heavy industry companies, right? Because steel manufacturers and um, you know the the makers of um, uh, airplanes and, and automotives and all that 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 those were probably more geared toward men um, because it would be maybe men in at in businesses who are making uh, purchases for their companies, um, you know, buying you know tools or buying machinery, all that kind of thing. That probably was not; those ads probably were not um, drawn for women, right? They were probably drawn for for men in those industries themselves, who would who would be you know making deals and making purchases. Um, but in terms of consumer goods, I think um, men are not really taken into consideration that much. Um, and in terms of children, uh, yeah, we do see ads for children. We have um, just as um, as I was saying, they're they're coming out. Some of the big companies, big consumer goods uh, manufacturers and retailers, are coming out with, say, newsletters for women um, to kind of develop brand loyalty and to actually gain some feedback from women and to learn what they want and, and what they need. Um, there's also an, an effort in this period to, um, and it, it starts before. It's not really a, it's not a Nazi invention. It's just the 
you know, an early 20th century invention to, to appeal more directly to children. And so we see more sort of brand related, um, uh, uh, you know, logos that, that might be attractive to children, um, you know, little characters associated with certain brands that, you know, might be attractive to children. Um, and as well, you know, little magazines, things like that. So they're, they are usually separate from the ones for the moms. But, but yeah, we do start to see a little bit of this, um, you know, brand development. Um, but it's, it's very new, and so it's not that widespread. Um, you know, one I can think of is um, the Salamander shoe manufacturer and retailer. They also had, you know, branch stores all over the country. They had a little kids' magazine that featured their Salamander um, character, and, you know, with puzzles and, um, you know, little short stories and things like that. So to try to develop throughout the family a, a sense of um, interest and loyalty to the brand. Um, you mentioned also in your introduction something I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. again. Uh, you mentioned the international sort of flavor of advertising, that they were, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of come over from the United States and Great Britain. And um, did the, During the Nazi period, did this sort of international cooperation, did this hold um, until obviously till the war broke out? Um, but say in the thir- early yeah, 30s, mid 30s, did yeah. they continue? That's uh, a good question. Um, to some extent, it does. Um, there is still some communication across borders um, through the mid 1930s, but th- those uh, those American and British agencies that I mentioned, who uh, come over in the 1920s and set up offices, they all leave. Not as you might expect, say in 33 or 34, because of the change in political climate in. Nazi Germany, but they actually leave in 31, 32 because of the depression. So they basically, you know, it's very expensive to have an international office. Um, and, you know, obviously the United States is suffering depression and the UK was as well. So, um, and all their German clients are dry, have dried up. So they retract and, and all of those, um, non-German firms leave in, in the depression during the early thirties before Hitler comes to power. In the mid-1930s, there is still um, a fair amount of travel um, among corporate leaders and among their advertisers and communications back and forth. Um, But what we do see is still a bit of a a change. Although they are talking and interested in what, you know, what's going on in other countries, the advertisers within Nazi Germany are being told by the Ad Council, encouraged, I should say, right, because it's not necessarily this coercive um, direct coercion, but they are being encouraged to think of German ads as German ads, right? That, that there should be a certain look to them that is, you know, homegrown, right? So that they, um, can certainly, you know, travel and, and, and think about what other countries are doing, but, you know, Germany should have German looking ads. So there is a, you know, an encouragement towards the use of the sort of fracture, you know, gothic typefaces, right, that you always see on Nazi books, right, mm-hmm. the, the kind of very angular um, t- typeface. There's an encouragement to use that. Um, in the 1920s, basically, ads had, because of this international um, spirit, had become, you know, they, they had chosen typefaces that were, um, you know, kind of like what we think of when we think of sort of Bauhaus looking sort of typeface, right? So sans serif, um, very clean and, and international, right? You can't really place it as German or not. Um, well, 
you know, so now in the mid-1930s, they're saying, let's go back to what we think of, at least, as kind of traditional German typeface. And it does increase in use. Um, there's no law about it. You don't have to. Um, and it's not everywhere, right? Not all ads are written in that typeface, but we do see an increase in, in it. And I think, again, that's because, you know, com- companies want to look like they're in the moment. They don't want to look out of date or out of step. Um, and so there's this desire to try to fit in, and, and so companies are using it. Um, it actually drops off again by, like, in the war years. Um, and a lot of companies go back to that kind of international typeface, which is um, which is interesting. But, yeah, so, no, there is, there is still communication until the war begins. And another actually interesting development, is that in the mid 1930s we see more in the sort of the the professional journals of of advertisers in Germany we see stories about advertising in other countries but they're differentiating they're saying this is the way the Swedes do it and you can see by their artwork or you can see by their text that it's a Swedish style and this is the way the French do it they are always very critical of the French they said the French graphics were too chaotic and not orderly and um, uh, you know they 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 didn't like those they were always most of the articles were were fairly negative about the French but there was this this desire in the mid 1930s although they're still looking outward and kind of talking about what they see to differentiate. This is an Italian style. This is a German style. This is a French style. Um, there's not so much of a, you know, international style. Um, so we've, we're, we're through the 30s, and so now the mm-hmm. war is going to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you could just talk just a little bit about the nature of the industry during the war. Right. Um, just uh, did they become sort of more patriotic mm-hmm. yep. um, or did they just still market their consumer goods in the way they had been doing in the thirties and sort of left the war pretend right. almost pretend like the war wasn't going on. Right. Yeah. Well, um, in 1939, when the war breaks out that remember that defensive spirit I talked about in the sort of early thirties during the depression that returns because in 1939, when the, when in, into 1940, when the war gets going, there is a push. There are some people in, you know, in various state ministries who say we should actually put a halt on all advertising, that it's a waste of resources, it's a waste of paper, it's a waste of, you know, manpower, that we don't need it, right? It's not, and it's not appropriate for the war, right? This is a serious time in Germany's, you know, uh, history, um, you know, to be advertising leisure products or, you know, new clothes or whatever. It's not it's not appropriate. So advertisers again become very defensive and we start to see advertisers and the companies who, who hire them, you know, saying, no, we need to hold on to advertising. It's important. And, um, you know, in, in Goebbels, again, he could have weighed, you know, come in on either side of this argument. He actually, um, from what we can tell, you know, supported advertising continuing because it was part of daily life. It was part of, what um, you know, Germans thought of as as normal living now to have ads on the sides of buses and have ads in store windows and ads in you know magazines. And so, if you removed all of that, you're really um, you know testing morale. That you know people would be freaked out. Like that would be very strange. And and you know, is that a sign that you know the apocalypse is coming? Right. You you want to keep people thinking everything is normal. And so. Um, although there were those who said we have to stop all advertising, 
the state and the Ad Council and, and business owners say no, it's important. And so it does continue, um, at least for through 1940 and about half of 1941, sort of through the summer of 1941, we don't see really any changes. We don't see a greater um, attention to patriotism, um, I mean, at least not significantly. Uh, you know, most companies are trying to sort of stick with status quo, right? That this is normal life, everything is going to be okay, we should just all, you know, continue on as we've been doing. Um, but by the sort of second half of 1941, we're starting to see a real um, decline in the availability of consumer goods products. And then the state has to respond because now they have the problem of um, worrying about morale. If consumers expect to find certain goods in st on store shelves because they've seen an ad, say, for Nivea hand cream, and they say, oh, yes, I'm out of Nivea hand cream. I, I've just seen this ad and been reminded I need to buy some, and then they go to the store and there is no Nivea hand cream. Then again, you're you're testing, you know, people's results. People start to be worried, you know, wait, why isn't there any? What is the scene? So, so the, in sort of late '41, um, we start to see the ad council, um, you know, making decisions about when it is appropriate to advertise and when it isn't. And there is a push to, um, and then legislation to end, um, you know, advertising for non, you know, war um, necessities, you know, things that are, that are not likely to be available because they're not necessary. Um, and that's a lot of the consumer goods, like a lot of your, your daily use things. Um, and so advertising does drop off after that um, in, the, in the normal sense of advertising. What we get instead, what companies are still allowed to do, okay, so they're not allowed to advertise some product that they make that is, is no longer available. But what they can do is advertise their company. They can say, um, so for instance, Nivea hand cream is made by Beiersdorf, and Beiersdorf can still talk about their company as a good, loyal German company that has, you know, su supported and helped German citizens for, you know, decades by producing, you know, goods that are of high quality and that these goods will return in the future. So not to forget, you know, the importance of Beiersdorf as an innovator and friend of Germans. And so this is what companies are doing. They're creating these ads that are just talking talk about the sort of uh, values of the company, right? That they are good nationalist, uh, you know, supporters of the nation and employers uh, of German men and women and, you know, that kind of thing. And that their quality products will return down the road. And the companies like to do this because, of course, they can keep those brands and company in people's minds for when they do return. They won't have forgotten about them. And it's the only, you know, it's the only way they can advertise. So we do see quite a big shift sort of in the last couple of years of the war toward these sorts of ads that are, um, that are called reminder ads. It just sort of remind you about, um, about the sort of values of the company. And of course, those values being in line with what the regime stands for. So we certainly see alignment there um, in terms of, you know, the, the common good as being a, an important value and hard work and, um, you know, faith in the future and that kind of thing. No, it's fascinating. Um, 
as I said, that this is a fascinating project, and I would want to encourage all our listeners to go out and, and get the book and read it. Um, so, we've, Dr. Swett, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before I let you go, we, we do like to ask one final question. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Mm. Well, since the book came out, I've um, I've just picked up a few, or sort of written a few short pieces, you know, um, chapters in books and journal articles on sort of related themes that kind of grew out of that project. So I've, I've written a couple of things about, about savings banks um, in the 1930s and into the war years and, and partly around um, the fact that historians have long known that because the regime was so worried about po- uh, public opinion, they did not want to go to war bonds again, um, as they had in the First World War to, you know, terrible results. They did not want to put you know, new, very heavy taxes on individuals um, to raise money for the war effort either. Um, so what they ended up doing is siphoning off people's savings accounts to fund the war. Um, and Germans had amassed a lot of savings in the 1930s because, um, you know, by the mid-1930s, unemployment has practically disappeared. And so people are bringing in money, um, but there isn't a lot of stuff to buy, right, as this sort of preparation for war cuts down on the number of consumer goods available. So a lot of people are saving um, at high rates in the 1930s, and the German government is then using that money uh, to pay for the war. And so what I I just want, I've been trying to figure out, uh, uh, you know, what the ads were like for those savings banks. Um, We might have expected, and there was one, um, early article, probably 20 years ago now, you know, that made the argument that um, ads for savings banks were all about sacrifice and the nation and um, the war. But in fact, a lot of the language that I found, not just in ads, but by officials who are trying to get people to save and that such, and, um, is that they are arguing that, you know, this is about people's personal um, goals and desires. It's not just the arguments around community and sacrifice. It's about saving for your own desires. Um, and so I've been sort of thinking about that a bit. Um, and and uh, yeah, so I'm still working on it, but um, that's what's coming next. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. I hope I can have you back on the show when you finally write <laughs> a book about it. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Um, Sure. I really enjoyed it. I um, also want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.